You put the put the first uh, part of that that chorus back up there, Michael. If you don't mind, the first part of that chorus from that song. Living, he living, he loved me. You get that one. I just want you to look at the words to that again. I know we just sang them. But the gospel is is summed up in in this chorus. And I know that that this one is not in the hymn book. And I know for some, maybe it's not a real song if it's not there. But it is is in the hymn book. Danny's called One Day. There you go. It's both. All right. So we got it. We got you all covered. (laughs) But but listen, I don't want you to miss today. You know, you're going to hear a sermon in a minute about Revelation and and one day what's going to happen. But I don't want you to miss what's already happened. And what's already happened in the Jesus, as it says in the, the very first verse, it says, one day when heaven was filled with his praises. Get that for just a second. Now, he was perfectly fine. There was nothing he needed to do for himself. He was, he was forever praised in heaven. And then the second part of that first verse is, one day his sin was as black as could be. And that was our problem. You realize Jesus left heaven not to solve his problem, but to solve our problem. And so out of love, he, he came to live among us. And he lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. The, the, the perfect life Jesus lived matters. It, it, it's not fast forward to the cross. It's pay attention every step of the way. Because God had a high demand for us, and we failed miserably, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3. And we couldn't live up to God's standard and over and over and over and over and over. And who we are is a problem. We are sinners. And living, he lived out what God had said to do. He was perfectly obedient to God because we couldn't be. And so his life matters. We get to live vicariously through him. And then dying, he saved us because God said the the penalty, the punishment for sin has to be death, but somebody worthy has to die. Now, I'm not worthy to die for you, and you're not worthy to die for me because I'm a sinner. A sinner can't die for other sinners, God says. And so Jesus, Jesus alone could die. And buried, he carried our sin far away. He realized that his burial, the fact that he was really dead matters. When we do baptism, we dunk somebody under the water to symbolize that that old stuff has been washed away and it's gone forever. The Bible tells us that God separates our sin as far as the east is from the west, that he throws it as far as into the bottom of the ocean, never to be remembered anymore. And then go to the next slide. Rising, it says, he justified Meaning he, he makes us right with God. He declares not that we've done anything to earn it, but that by his death and his resurrection, now we are declared to be right with God. You can try all you want. And trust me, I've tried it. Do lots of good things. And then God, are you happy with me now? And God just kind of laughs and says, what are you talking about? I'm happy with you because of what Jesus did. Not what you're trying to do. Give up on all that junk and just give yourself completely to him. And then it says one day he's coming. And that's what we'll talk about this morning is the one day when he will come back. And so before we turn our our hearts and minds to the scripture this morning, I, I, I just want you to make sure don't miss what's already happened. One day, yes, but don't miss what's already happened. What Jesus has already done for you. He loves you. And he gave his life for you. And he wants to be, as, we, as we'll tell kids, he wants to, to be with you forever. And he wants you to be with him forever. And there is but one way for that to, be, for that to happen. 
And that is through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm glad you're here this morning, but I don't want you to miss that message. I don't want you to miss the message that is the true gospel. Listen, coming to church is great, and we love you, and we're glad you're here. But don't count on coming to church to get you in heaven. Count on Jesus and Him alone. Let's pray together. I promise that that's the sermon will come later, by the way. All this stuff's free, all right? So we're going to pray, and we'll, we'll go, all right? God, we're so grateful for the gospel, and, and uh, Lord, help us not to miss it this morning. Uh, God, as we, as we look at your scripture, enlighten us, open our eyes, help us to see what maybe we've not seen before, help our hearts to resonate with what we hear, and Lord, change us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You all know, or many of you know, I've been coaching baseball for a long, long time. I started years ago. I actually started, my first team that I coached was here in Murray when I was in college a long time ago. The Murray Bandits we were. And I have no idea why we were the Murray Bandits, but that's what we were. And so I started coaching a long time ago. And then when I graduated from Murray State, I went back to Louisville where I'm from. And I coached in high school for about four years. And, and then I took a little break from coaching. And then I had kids. And so I started coaching all over again. And I even coached a year at Murray State a few years ago, volunteered as assistant there. And now I get to help coach my son's team. And and, and I coach third base. And and so m- one of my jobs is to give signs. You ever seen that in a baseball game? Yeah, there's two different signs that come okay so some of the signs come from the dugout and that's a sign from the pitching coach or somebody to the catcher as to what kind of pitch they want to throw or strategy they want to have and a lot of those signs are up here okay so they've got different signs of the chin and so on and i just called a curveball okay so that's just so you know all right that's those are the signs that are there and then you see the third base coach now he's doing signs all over the place. He's got signs here and he's doing this and he's got them across the chest and a belt and he might grab his ear and do one of these things and then he'll clap, which means I'm done and I hope you got it. Okay, that's, that's what that means. And so, so the runner at first base or the hitter in the batter's box knows that according to the signs, something's going to happen. Now, if you're the hitter in the batter's box and the steal sign is given, are you supposed to do anything? Not really, right? You're not going to steal first base. Can't happen. You're supposed to, you're just knowing here's what's going to take place. But if you're the runner at first base and you've been given the steal sign, what's your job? Steal second base, right? That's your job. So the hitter has been informed, here's what's going to happen. The runner's been informed, here's what your job is. You know what the most frustrating thing is about coaching? When guys miss signs. Now in, in youth league, it's great because we, we just have one sign. And our guys know that if I go anywhere on my face or my hat, it's a steal. And if I don't touch my face or my hat, you stay right there at first base. Don't you move. All right? Because if you get picked off or you get thrown out because you missed the sign, I'm not going to be real happy with you. There's nothing more frustrating than when guys miss signs. And sometimes you'll see a coach, he's given all these signs. And that runner over there, he's been given a steal sign. He just stands just like this. Pitch goes to the plate, and there he is. So coach says, well, okay, maybe I didn't give it right. So he goes through his signs again, the next pitch. And you see the steam rising from the the head of the coach. And eventually he just shouts across the field, steal second base, dude. Go. Ain't giving any signs anymore. What we're going to look at this morning from the scripture are the signs from God, the signals from God, both for here's what's going to happen and here's your role in all of this. And so this morning, I'm not going to try to pick apart the entire book of Revelation and give you all the different signs, but we're going to look at one passage of Scripture, one little part of Revelation that includes some symbolism, some signs for us from the coach that we can't miss. Because if we miss them, we're going to be in big, big trouble. So let's look at Revelation chapter 21. 
Revelation 21, we're going to look at the first eight verses of this chapter. It's all the way to the end of the Bible. There are 22 chapters in Revelation, and we're going to look at chapter 21, second to last chapter in the Bible. So if you don't know where anything is in the Bible, this is your lucky day. Turn all the way to the right and start flipping back to the left just a little bit, and you'll see Revelation and then 21. All right? You don't even have to, you fake everybody out. Okay? Here you go. Revelation 21, we're going to look at the first eight verses. I'm going to read it, and then we'll pick it apart quickly, and then we'll close, all right? Revelation 21, verse 1, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, time out there for just a second. Then I saw, who in the world is seeing this? There's a guy named John who was one of the disciples that walked around with Jesus for his three years. And then John lived longer than any of the other disciples. And he wrote several books in the Bible. He didn't, he, he was not John the Baptist. Okay. John the Baptist didn't write any of the books of the Bible. This is a different kind of John. It's Peter, James, and John. If you, if you, if you've ever heard those guys together, this guy wrote the gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He wrote the book of Revelation. What happened was that he was taken into exile, and while he was there on this little island called Patmos in the Mediterranean, he had a vision from God during which God revealed all this stuff as to what was going on and what was going to happen. And God revealed it in what's known as some kind of apocalyptic kind of symbolism, which means there's some weird stuff going on. And it all means something, and it all points to here's what's going to happen, and here's what your, your role is. So the whole book of Revelation is a book of signs. It's a book of signals. It's a book of, of make sure you're reading this correctly. Make sure you understand. And initially it was written so that John could pass it along to the Christians who were having a tough time because of persecution. So John gets all the way through the book and then he tells them, here's what I see that God is revealing to me is going to happen in the future. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea no longer existed. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, the God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live among them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Right, because these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. I will give water as a gift to the thirsty from the spring of life. The victor will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowards, unbelievers, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now some of this might be familiar to you. You may have heard these words at a funeral before, that one day there will be no more death, there will be no more tears. God will wipe away all their tears. Maybe you've heard a preacher read this scripture. Maybe you didn't know where it was, or maybe you didn't know the context, that it's surrounded by some other stuff, that maybe you didn't know that Jesus was speaking, the one who sits on the throne. And so we're going to look at this this morning. The one thing you get that is very obvious from this, and the word is repeated a few times, and it's the word new, that God's promise here, as we wrap up our particular series called I Promise, where we've looked at how God has been faithful even when we've not been faithful. Over the, the ages, from Genesis to Revelation, the, the story of the Bible is that God is faithful even when we are not. The promise that we get here, the promise in Jesus Christ that happens at the end of time is God's promise that I will make all things new. I will make all things new. Verse 5 says, Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. 
Verse 1 says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I will make all things new. John sees a new eternal reality. The old has been made new again. It's been restored. It's what creation and humankind have been waiting on since Genesis 3 when sin entered the world. A return to Eden, so to speak. A return to the perfect creation that God wanted things to be from the very beginning. It's the final reversal of all the curses that sin has brought. All the death, all the pain, all the suffering, all that stuff reversed. It's a final reversal of all the covenant curses that God said to the Israelites, if you do this, you'll be blessed, and if you don't, you'll be cursed. And it's the final fulfillment of all the covenant promises from Genesis to Revelation. The covenant promise overall is that I will be your God and you will be my people. The former heaven, the former earth, it says, have ceased to exist. They've been totally transformed. And we live in sort of the now and not yet time. We know that... Jesus has already come, and so we have access to God the Father and salvation through Him, but we live in a not yet time that not everything has been made new, right? We know that. But one day, all that sin has touched will be renewed. Revelation puts this in some symbolism and so on, and we might be tempted to think that this is some sort of alternate spiritual reality, maybe way out there somewhere. But you know, John talks about in his visions a new earth, a a physical experience that will live with God among us in a physical body, much like Jesus' transformed body after his resurrection, a resurrected body, but here again in a renewed place, the way that it was always meant to be. We'll be the people of God that he intended from the beginning, living in the world that God intended from the beginning. And so in verse 5 we have it, I'm making all things new. And the truth is, we know all things need to be made new. Our world's messed up. And it's not more messed up than it's ever been. It was as messed up as it was ever going to be when sin entered the world. That is the problem. And sin is just simply compounded, and we now live in this time, and we know that it's messed up. Just look around. Just watch the news. Just pay attention. And we constantly search for solutions. What's going to be the right thing? What's going to change everything? The Bible tells us very clearly here, I, Jesus says, am making everything. Now, you realize only God can do it. Now, we're in a presidential election cycle. And we got people on all different sides of this deal. And you know what they all think? They all think that their person is going to be the one that's going to make it all right. Now, that's, that's, pretty, that's kind of funny. But we, we buy into that, don't we? That a person, well, if we just get this person or that person in office or out of office, if we just pass these laws, if that judge would make that decision, if this community leader would do these things, but there is no president, there is no presidential candidate, there is no law, there's no judge, there's no community leader, there's no church, there's no pastor, there's no family, there's no individual, there's no group, there's nothing that we can do to make all things new. Nothing. Do you realize that? That may be the most depressing thing you've ever heard. (laughs) I realize, I get it. But we've got to come to grips with the fact that only God can make all things new. Only Him. That doesn't mean we don't do anything. That's not what I'm talking about. But we have so convinced ourselves that through our human efforts, we're going to do it and we're going to see everything change. You know what? We, We are absolutely dependent on God. Only revival from Him and only one day when He comes back will all things be made new. He is our only hope. And so in Jesus, God makes all things new, both now and for all eternity. Now here's what that means as John goes through this. I want to look at these quickly. 
He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea no longer existed. One of the things that John sees is that there are several things that are that will be no more, if you understand. One of those things will be no more evil. Now, most of the life and ministry of Jesus centered on and around the Sea of Galilee. If you've read his story in the Gospels, you've heard this before, the Sea of Galilee. Now, this is located, this sea, they call it a sea, it's more like a lake, it's like a 13-mile by 7-mile lake. It's located in northeast Israel, and it's surrounded by some hills, especially on the east side, and down from the hills flows this cool, dry air. But the lake is 680 feet below sea level, and so the climate is different at the lake level than it is from from the hills. At at the surface level, there's lots of warm, moist air. And so when the cool, dry air meets the warm, moist air and, and comes down over the very shallow water of this lake at its deepest point, somewhere between 150 and 200 feet, it whips up storms very, very quickly and very violently. And if you've read the story of the Gospels, you know that every once in a while the disciples get out on a boat and a storm, it seems, comes out of nowhere. That was common. Because the cool air would come down, meet with the moist air, and boom, there it goes. And so there was great danger, and so the people feared the sea. They, they didn't have Bo Dodson on Twitter and Facebook telling them every single thing that's going to happen. Giving you your weekend forecast, watch out for the storm, it's going to be whipped up. When the humidity gets there, it's going to happen. They didn't have him. They didn't have WPSD Local 6. They weren't ready. And so they were scared. But more than that, the Hebrew people had a history of fearing the sea. John's imagery in Revelation, if you were to go back and read it and see where he talks about the sea, it's, it's not something that is this calm, peaceful, let's go hang out at the beach and listen to the waves come in. It's not a vacation. They're terrified of it. In Revelation, the sea is seen as the source of evil. It's seen as, as the place where the evil nations that cause tribulation for God's people come from. It's seen as the place of the dead. It's seen as the location of greedy people who are out there trading, the merchants and so on. It's seen as part of the old creation that's, that's gone bad. And so they're terrified of the sea. It's the symbol of evil. It's where evil comes from in the book of Revelation. The sea is associated with fear and evil. And so when John talks about in verse 1 that the sea no longer existed, you know what he's pointing to? You know what the sign is? Evil's gone. It's gone. It is no more. Will there be an ocean when, when the world is made new? I don't know. But I know that the, what the ocean represents won't be there, and that's evil. It will not be there anymore. No more threats from evil nations, John says, to the people. No more death. It was the place of the dead. No more greedy trade practices. No more fear of the sea and all its dangers and its unknowns and its storms out of nowhere. Instead, there will be peace and holiness. No more evil. John goes on in verse 3 to talk about the fact there will be no more separation. He says, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and He will live with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. It, the, the word dwelling there is the word tabernacle. It's the same word that, that is used for the Old, the Old Testament tabernacle. It's the same word that's used in John chapter 1 when it says the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. The tabernacle was the place where God's presence was and the people went there to worship him. And where does it say in Revelation that God will make his tabernacle among us? In our presence. There's no more separation. One of the main consequences of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden was they were banned from the, from the Garden. 
the very presence of God. He walked among them. He just came down and talked to them. And they were banned. They were thrown out of God's presence. Now we know Jesus came in the, in the Gospels and He lived among us for 33 years. But that was a short time. And really just a preview of what was to come. And Jesus promised that He would send His Holy Spirit to live among us. But that's really just a down payment, right? We don't have the full, immediate, physical presence of God among us. But one day, John says, one day there will be no more separation from the direct presence of God. That's the ultimate fulfillment of all those promises that I will be your God and you will be my people. I'll live among you, he told the Israelites. In the first coming of Jesus, we got a little preview. In the sending of the Holy Spirit, we got a down payment. In the second coming of Jesus, all things will be made new and we'll never again be separated from the presence of God. Never again. He'll make his dwelling with us, in the middle of us, with nothing in the way. John goes on in verse 4. And he says, not only no more evil and, and no more separation, but no more sorrow. And for some, this is the message you need to hear this morning because your life is full of it. Sorrow after sorrow after sorrow. When you think of the causes of sorrow and sadness and pain and crying and depression and death, all of it is from loss. I mean, everything that we experience that causes us sorrow happens because we've lost something. Maybe it's a relationship, or a person, or money, or a job, or a pet, or a friend, or your health. They all cause sorrow. John says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Verse 4, death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. Now that all sounds too good to be true. And if it weren't in the Bible, we'd have no reason at all to think and to hope that there's some sort of peace after this life of pain and sorrow. But it's interesting to me that everybody, whether they are a believer in Jesus or not, whether they consider themselves religious or not, everybody seems to think and seems to long for some kind of world that's no longer filled with sorrow. We all know something's wrong, don't we? I mean, we, we, we may not believe the same things about what caused the, the something to be wrong. We know something is wrong, no matter who you talk to. They have a standard that says this is right and this is what? Wrong. We know something is wrong. And we know there has to be something better. And we all believe that maybe one day, someday, whether it's through oblivion or whether it's through life after death, that maybe one day, someday, there will be peace. What do we say when someone dies tragically? What do we post? R.I.P. Rest in peace. Because we all believe that maybe there's some sort of peace after this life of pain and sorrow. The Bible tells us very clearly that there is. <clears throat> that God, in making all things new, is going to restore this world to what He wanted it to be from the very beginning, full of joy, peace, and fulfillment. He says He'll wipe away every tear. God will do it. He'll eliminate all the tears and all that caused it. He says there will be no more death. I can't count the number of funerals I've done. And every one of them's difficult. There's not an easy one to do. I don't care if the person has lived a full life and the family says, well, now they're at peace. Maybe they are, but it's still hard for the family, isn't it? It's still tough for us left on this side of eternity. It never gets easier, no matter how long a person lives. The other day in my office, my son Duke, he's five. I don't remember exactly what brought it up. <clears throat> 
Oh, I, now I do. I do. I have a cane in my office that a friend made for me, and it's it's made to look like baseball bats. Okay, and so. Duke saw the cane and he said, one day you'll use that when you get old, won't you? I said, well, I hope so. I hope I get to be old. He said, and then you die. I said, um, yeah. He said, every single person is going to die. Well, I'm not sure. You know, that's kind of a morbid mindset for a five-year-old, I guess. But, you know, he doesn't truly understand all that. But you know what? He, he gets it, doesn't he? He knows the truth. One out of one, fairly high percentage. Nobody gets out of life alive. Nobody. But one day, the Bible tells us, there'll be no more death. Won't experience it anymore. And so as a result, there'll be no more grief and no more crying and no more pain. No more sorrow. For those who know and love Jesus, there is coming a day where there will be no more sorrow. And so if you say, Lord, my heart is broken. And God, I've experienced so much pain in my life. It's been one loss after another, after another, after another. Your only hope to one day escape all that is Jesus Christ. And that's it. And he can help you experience it now. And there will be a not yet portion of that because one day it will happen. There will be no more sorrow. Verse 6, John says, uh, he writes, I will give, talking about Jesus here, I will give as a gift to the thirsty from the spring of life. I will give water as a gift. One day there will be no more unmet needs. No more evil, no more sorrow, no more separation, no more unmet needs. Most of you don't know the, the volume of requests we get to help people. Uh, either our deacons or myself, typically we're the ones who get those requests, those phone calls, those emails... Uh, people just dropped by. The last deacons meeting we had, we had three different folks during the meeting who dropped by. I got another call this past week, another message on Facebook this past week of folks just needing help. They, they, they have unmet needs physically. And we know, of course, that unmet needs aren't just physical. And we have relational needs and we have emotional needs and we have all kinds of different things that we we now live in a world where those many of those needs go unmet and until all is made new we'll continue to live with unmet needs but john here recounts jesus saying i'll give water as a gift to the thirsty and he's not just talking about quenching a physical thirst but he's talking about meeting all the needs that you've lived with for so long and God, when, when will these needs be met? When will these desires be fulfilled? And it says, I'll give water to the thirsty. I'll fill all your needs and it will be without cost. It won't cost you anything. It's a gift. One day there will be a time where there are no unmet needs. Relationships, emotions, all of it will be made whole one day when Jesus returns. Then he gets to the end of these verses and he talks about in verse 8 that there will be no more sin. He says, cowards, unbelievers, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. He's going to eliminate sin. I, I cannot, I really cannot put my mind around a world without sin. I, I personally can't. Maybe, maybe you're good at that. You can really... I, I, 
I, I, I struggle to fathom that. Do you know why? Because it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's touched everything and everyone. It is so hard to imagine that one day we will live in a world without sin, even the smallest sin. John gives us a pretty com- comprehensive list here. Talks about cowards, people that back down, half-hearted commitments. He says, unbelievers, there'll be no more fake Christianity, no more weeds growing among God's people. There'll be no more vile people. Evil will be gone. No more murderers because hate is gone. No more sexual immorality because our twisted minds and hearts will be gone. No more sorcerers. He talks about the spiritual battle will be over. No more idolaters because he says... Paul says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. No more liars, false prophets. In this new city of God, the only residents are people who follow Jesus. Eternity is not going to be great for everybody. He talks about that the folks who are unbelievers, and maybe you said this is scare tactics. I didn't write it. I'm just conveying it to you. There will come a day that those who do not believe in Jesus will be punished forever in hell. Well, that's not right. If God's so loving, how could He do that? You know what? God is loving and He's equally just and equally holy. And to defend His holiness, He must punish sin. But to defend His love, He sent Jesus to give us forgiveness of our sin. And so understand, one day... Eternity will be bliss and great for those who believe in Jesus and for those who don't. Their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This morning, I don't want to scare you personally. That's not my goal. But if the Holy Spirit needs to wake you up this morning and say, hold on just a second. I'm coasting through life. I've never believed in Jesus. I've never made that commitment. I have never trusted in Him alone for my salvation. Today is the day, the Bible tells us, no one is guaranteed tomorrow. And we see it all the time. One day, the only people we'll be around are those who believe in Jesus. This new city has walls and it keeps out sin. One day. But what do you do in the meantime? We ain't there yet, are we? That should be inspiring to you. One day. We sang about it. All the songs this morning designed to get you thinking about heaven. Praising the Lord for what He's going to do. But you know what? What do we do in the meantime? When you read the book of Revelation and you understand that it was given to John as a message for the churches who were so desperate to have some sort of hope because they were being persecuted. The Roman government didn't like them and didn't accept them and wouldn't sanction their religion and they were trying to be stamped out. And they needed, how can, what do we do in the meantime? I get it. Jesus is, you know, he's, he's going to be victorious. What do we do? This book was written to help them understand. And the main message of this book is very simple. The overarching message of the book of Revelation is simply press on. That's the sign from God in the third base coaching box. Press on. Keep going. Don't give up. Overcome. It might seem like there's no hope now, but there's something that is more certain than what you're facing now, and it's what Revelation points to, and that is that Jesus wins. He truly is the Lord of this world, not whoever you might think it is, not whatever we might be convinced that it is. It might seem to the to the folks, the, the early Christians, that Caesar was Lord, but Revelation shows us that God is in control of history and that Jesus truly is Lord, and victory is already ours. And so we can press on. Several things and then we'll close.
Press on in good deeds. Verse 2 says, This holy city came down prepared like a bride for her husband. Now, I've done lots of premarital counseling, and I've done lots of weddings. And there is no one more frantic than the bride getting everything ready. It's only three years away. I got to get going. <laughs> Haven't met the guy yet, but I want, I want to be ready, you know. But the, the last six months or so are always interesting because it's at that point when she starts to prepare herself in a variety of ways. And maybe she starts going to the tanning bed and the gym and all the things she's going to do. You know, I'm going to really get ready for this wedding. She's trying on her dress, and then she gets her hair done, and the makeup, and all that stuff, and that's a trial run, and then they really pay for it later on, and and they, you know, and then what is she? What's her whole goal? Her whole goal is that when those doors in the back are thrown open, and her husband, future husband, is standing right here, that he's like, "Whoa, I stand next to the guy. I've heard him. Wow, man, or just silence. I've heard him." And I think it's so cool that the bride does all that. I I think it points back to Scripture. Because this city, this new city of Jerusalem, represents the people of God. It's not just some place with buildings. Here it comes down out of the heavens. It represents the people of God who are adorned, the Bible says, dressed up like a bride, ready for the doors to be thrown open to meet her husband. Being God Himself. How do we get ourselves beautified? How do we dress ourselves up? A couple chapters earlier, John talks about how we are adorned with righteous deeds. The things that we do that are godly and in obedience to Jesus Christ. You might say, well, hold on just a second. Now, you've told us before that you don't get saved by doing good stuff. You're exactly right. Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, six chapters. You know what the first three are about? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. You know what the last three are about? Here's how you live now. Good deeds, obedience. Press on. Let me encourage you. You ever get weary in doing good deeds? You know what Paul said? Don't grow weary in doing good deeds, for at the proper time you'll reap the reward. Continue on. Continue in obedience. Press on in good deeds. Secondly, press on in prayer. The dwelling of God is with humanity, it says. If that's the case one day, why not go ahead and live in communion with Him every day through prayer? We have the opportunity to get in touch with the Lord, to dwell intimately with Him, to put ourselves in an undivided position with Him in the presence of God. Paul said, the right, what he said about prayer was that it eliminates anxiety and it brings peace, the sign of God's presence in our lives. Let me encourage you, press on in doing good. Press on in prayer. Also, press on in worship. This new city, this new temple, this new tabernacle, so to speak, is going to be a place of eternal worship. And if that's the case, let's be sure that we are worshiping already here. A continual worship experience is possible. You don't have to be sitting in church to worship the Lord. Press on in good deeds, in prayer, in worship. And then press on in hope. Verse 4, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. What we experience now is temporary. Place your hope in Jesus Christ. Life is hard, 
I'd be the first to tell you that. I'm not going to try to, to, to blow smoke at you this morning. I know that it's painful. Where will your hope come from? Our hope, the Bible says, comes from the Lord. Place your hope in Him today and you'll be able to press on in hope. And then finally, press on in truth. Then the one seated on the throne, verse 5, said, Look, I am making everything new. And he also said, Write, talking to John, because these words are faithful and true. It's a great scene in Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade where they finally arrive where the Holy Grail is. This ancient building. And Indiana Jones is the only one who knows how to make it through the maze to get back to where the room is where the Grail is being guarded. And so in order for Indiana Jones to be forced to go into this room, one of the guys on the opposite side shoots his dad. Henry Jones Sr. Shot in the gut, laying on the ground. And Indiana Jones is challenged with a question in the statement. It says, maybe it's time to ask yourself, what do you believe? Do you truly believe that the Holy Grail, Indiana, can restore your father? And folks, this morning, what do you believe? Do you believe that what the Bible says in the book of Revelation is true, or is it just a fairy tale to you? What do you believe? And if you believe God's word, then how should we live? The coach has given the signs. Don't miss it. The message is to press on, to keep going. Don't give up. Stay committed to keep praying, keep worshiping, keep hoping, keep standing on the truth. God has promised that He will make all things new. And He's promised the Holy Spirit in the meantime, so press on. His promises are true. He's faithful. And press on. Let's pray together. I won't be able to pray for you this morning. And I won't call your name, and I certainly won't embarrass you in any way. I'm not going to ask you to stand or even raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to come down forward. But if there's a way that I can pray for you, and you said, you know what, it's getting tough for me to press on. It, it, is, it has been very, very difficult for me to believe what God is saying. And you'd say, would you just pray for me? We do this from time to time. All I'm going to ask is that you would lift your eyes and you'd make eye contact with me. We'll acknowledge to one another. And I'll simply pray for you in just a moment. If that's you, if you say, you know what, life is hard and it's tough to press on right now, would you pray for me? You make eye contact and we can put your eyes right back down. You're not alone this morning. You're among people who know Jesus but understand life is hard and we're tracking toward the same thing and I'm glad you're here. Heavenly Father, I pray for those folks this morning for whom life has been a difficult journey and it's tough to press on. Lord, may they see the truth of who you are today, Lord Jesus. I pray you'd invade their souls and their minds and their hearts. And bless them with a special touch of your presence this morning. 
May they press on this week in doing what is right, in prayer and in worship and in truth and in hope. Lord, give them the strength to press on and claim the victory that is found in Jesus Christ. I pray your blessings over them. Comfort them, Lord. Hold them in your hands. Wrap them up in your arms. And heal their broken hearts. Lord, may we press on as Elm Grove Baptist Church and never give up. As individual believers, Lord, help us to press on. Thank you for the victory that is ours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close a little different this morning. Normally we close with a song that's kind of slow and smooth. We're going to close with victory in Jesus this morning. And I want you to sing it as a prayer. And when we get to the end, we're done. We're just going to close. All right, That's our prayer this morning. Closing prayer is victory in Jesus. Let me encourage you this week, don't forget about Wednesday night. And I also want to make mention, Wendy Holshue's mother passed away. Please be in prayer for them as well. But Wendy told me this morning, you know what, it's all right. And we're going to sing this morning, and she's going to sing as well, Victory in Jesus. And that's how we're going to end. And we're going to stand on the truth of what God has told us. And so sing it from your heart this morning. And when it's done, you can leave. All right? Let's stand together and we'll sing a song. again and cause the blind to see and then I cried dear Jesus come and heal my broken spirit and somehow Jesus came and brought to me the victory oh victory in Jesus my savior forever he sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood he loved me and I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. I heard about a mansion he has built for me in glory, and I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea, about the angels singing and the old redemption story, and some sweet I'll sing up there the song of victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his reading.
dismissed.